Well, let's turn to Matthew 13 again. And we're going to look again at these great parables, these truths right out of ordinary life that teach us about life as it really is, teaching that shows us uh, what's real and what isn't, how to keep our sanity when uh, the world is going crazy, how to keep our heads when everyone around us is losing theirs. In short, this is teaching on how to survive the 80s. As uh, I said last week, this is truth about life now and how to live it. The Lord's keen insight into things as they really are. Let's uh, begin with verse 24. This is the second parable which the Lord taught that day along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, that is, at night, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Why then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. I suppose we could say that the moral of that parable is don't be a terror upper. According to the parable, the sower goes out to uh, sow in his field, just as we saw in the first parable. He broadcasts the seed widely and generously, and it falls into the soil. But uh, at night, there is another sowing. An enemy sows uh, another type of seed, tares, in the field, apparently before the soil is turned over. And uh, later, this seed is introduced into the uh, into the ground, in the same plot of ground in which the farmer has sown the, the wheat seeds. For a time, uh, nothing is detectable. The seeds grow, and uh, these tares are indistinguishable from the wheat. But one day, the farmhands are out in the field, and they notice that something is wrong. The uh, wheat doesn't look right. And so they go back to the to the farmer and they say, didn't you sow good seed in the field? And he says, yes. So they say, then from where did, this, did these tares come? What's their source? So the farmer goes out and looks in his field and he discovers that a plot is afoot. There's been some skullduggery. Aha, he says, an enemy has done this. He has sown tares in the uh, in the field, the uh, farmhands, being men of action, say, "Well, what do you want us to go do? Shall we go out and and pull up the tares?" The farmer says, "No, no. Let them grow together until the harvest, and then we'll bind the tares into bundles and burn them, and we'll take the good seed into my barns." 
Now, apparently, this practice of sowing tares in the field as a form of revenge was very widespread. It was actually prohibited by Roman law. The uh, fines and penalties for doing this sort of thing were very severe, but uh, it was a good way to get revenge, and apparently this uh, ordinance was uh, widely ignored. When you wanted to get back at a farmer that had done you some wrong, then you'd sow tares in his field. The tares, of course, are weeds. That's all. They were a particular form of weed, a, a darnel, a bearded darnel, which in its initial stages of growth looked just like wheat. They were virtually indistinguishable. But uh, in the later stages, they could be identified when they came to, to head. The problem was that the roots of the tear would entangle themselves around the roots of the wheat. So if you tried to tear up the uh, tear, uproot them before the harvest, you would destroy the crop. And they couldn't be thrashed together because the tares were slightly poisonous and they introduced uh, their seed into the good grain and ruined it. And so there was only one way to handle the, prop the problem and that's the way we have described here in the passage before us. So this is a, a parable right out of life. Everyone that heard Jesus would know precisely what he was talking about. It happened almost every day. Now, there are a couple of observations that we need to make about uh, this parable. There are certain elements in the parable that, uh, the, that, that, you, that you find in the first parable, certain common elements. For one thing, there is a sower, and seed is sown in the field, and there is uh, the matter of due process. The seed grows up to maturity and finally comes to harvest. You find both those components in both uh, parables. However, in this parable, you have something new introduced. You have the fact of bad seed. In the first parable, you have bad soil. The harvest is impaired because the soil doesn't receive the seed. There's something wrong with the soil. In this parable, the Focus is not on the soil at all, it's on the seed. You have good seed and bad seed. The second element you have introduced in this parable that you don't find in the first is the idea of conspiracy. In the first uh, parable, the soil doesn't receive the word. There is a sort of passive resistance. But in the, in the second parable, there is a conspiracy. There's an enemy. Someone is conspiring against the farmer to uh, impair the crop. Now, those two elements we need to keep in mind as we look at Jesus' uh, explanation. That's found in verses 36 through 43. Now, we're going to pass over the parable of leaven and the parable of the mustard seed. We'll come back to that later, but we want to get the interpretation of this uh, second parable first. Verse 36. Then he left the multitudes... And went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil." And the harvest is the end of the age. 
and the reapers are angels. So he identifies for us every element in the parable. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, you'll notice that this parable is not explained to the multitudes. Remember, we saw from last uh, week's study that the Lord was concealing truth from those who did not want to hear it. Truth is a precious commodity, and he only reveals the good things of God to those who genuinely want to hear them. And so he spent the day teaching in parables, seemingly obscuring truth. Back in verse 34, Matthew tells us that Jesus spoke all these things to the multitudes in parables, and he was not talking to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew says uh, that Jesus uh, is much like the psalmist who in Psalm 78 says, All right, I'm going to tell you some mysteries. I'm going to utter deep and dark secrets from the beginning of time, and then he proceeds to do so. And that's what Jesus did. He spoke in parables. People didn't understand. They didn't get the point. And when the meeting broke up, they went off mumbling and scratching their heads and thinking, what a bummer, I should have gone fishing. I wasted my whole afternoon. Why did I bother? And they are those that Jesus described as having ears, but not hearing, because they didn't want to hear. They had eyes to see, but they didn't see. They didn't want to see. So they missed the meaning of the parable, but not the disciples. They tagged along with Jesus as he made his way back to Capernaum, crowded in his house, sat around the living room floor, and said, tell us what the parables mean. Explain it to us. We don't get the point. Because, you see, these men wanted to know the truth. They were rough-cut men, largely ignorant of spiritual things, but they had a heart to know the truth, and it's to these that God revealed, or the Lord revealed, the secrets of the kingdom. It reminds me of, of the years that I used to work with university students. Greg can identify with this, and we'd go into dorms and fraternities and, and speak the gospel to people, and normally we had a first meeting that was somewhat introductory and we would have some witness given, people telling what the Lord had, had done for them personally, and then a simple presentation of the gospel and, and answer a few questions, and then adjourn to another meeting, an after meeting, where we could talk more seriously to people that were really interested in finding out what it was all about. And these men and women would come into the room with their beer cans and ashtrays and sit on the floor, and that's when things would really begin to become fun because they asked the right kind of questions. They were ignorant often of spiritual issues. It was a much smaller group, but there was a there was receptivity there. There were open hearts. And that's what the Lord is doing here, you see. He's trying to get to people who want to hear the truth. And so now as these disciples gather around, he begins to tell them the secrets of the kingdom. 
tells them first that the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now remember a couple of weeks ago we mentioned that 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 expression, Son of Man, is an idiom, a Semitic idiom for man. That's all. In Psalm 8, 4, the psalmist says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? And uh, the writer of Hebrews correctly identifies that son of man is man. That's us. That's all. Man is as he ought to be, really. Man as he was intended to be. Now here, the Lord seems to be referring to himself, but not always when he uses that expression. Here he identifies himself as the man who goes out to sow seed. And the seed that he sows is identified here as the sons of the kingdom. Now it would seem that we have a difference between this parable and the first parable, because in the first parable, the seed is the word. Here it's sons. But not really. Because the Lord has in mind the idea of due process. Seed is sown, the word is sown in hearts, and it grows up to maturity. The product or the result is mature manhood and womanhood. We become sons of the kingdom by responding to the word, you see. And that word essentially is faith. It's a matter of belief. That's what it's all about. That's the name of the game. It's a word of faith. Believe in God and believe in his son. Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Are you troubled this morning? Are you hassled by life? Are you under pressure? Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. What's the solution? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Keep on believing. You see? That's where our sense of worth and adequacy comes from. By believing in the power of an indwelling Christ. That's what makes it all worthwhile. That's what makes the Christian life worth living. Not trying harder. Or even trying again. Just counting on the Lord, trusting Him, believing Him, acting out of His life. That's the good word that's sown in the heart, and it grows up and produces mature men and women of the kingdom, sons. But what Jesus tells us in this parable is that not only is the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, sowing seed, but so is the enemy, whom he identifies here as Satan. Satan's out sowing seed as well. And he has a word. And believe it or not, the essence of his word is faith. Except his word is believe in yourself. Believe in man. Believe in what man can do. That's the essence of all humanistic endeavor. That's what's behind everything that Satan is doing in the world. That's why it's so hard to identify, because it isn't always obviously evil. From the time we're little bitty tykes, little ankle snappers, as Dave Pavlik calls them. We grow up hearing, trust yourself, count on yourself, believe yourself. And if you've been in athletics or in almost any other endeavor, I almost fell off the thing, um, you know that's what you're told. You can do it. Have confidence in yourself. I have confidence in confidence, you see. I have confidence in me. You say, that's the sound of music. That's rated G. That's good. No, that's not good. That's bad. That's terrible. That's the bad news. That's not good news. 
God doesn't want us to have confidence in ourselves. But that's what Satan tells us. Believe in yourself. That's humanism. That's what's behind the political systems, educational systems. The whole world's rife with it. Philosophers say it. Farmers say it. Educators say it. Mountain men say it. The ACLU says it. The YMCA says it. You read it in uh, Penthouse Magazine and in Better Homes and Garden. It's all over the place. We're awash in it. That's why it's so hard to identify. But it's the word of Satan. See, believe in yourself. Count on yourself. And it's a lie. It's a dastardly lie. It's ruinous. It'll destroy you. Jesus says that Satan is a liar and a murderer. His philosophy is to deceive and his objective is to destroy. And he deceives us by telling us that you have everything you need to live life. You don't need God. Just count on yourself. That's all. He doesn't care if you're a drunk or an adulterer. He doesn't even want to take you that far necessarily. All he wants to do is get you to believe in yourself. That's a big lie. And people buy it. It's universally believed. It's a system of faith, of belief. Men believe it. They live that way. And they grow up, the sons of the evil one grow up right alongside the sons of the kingdom. Sometimes they're very, very difficult to distinguish because they're involved in all sorts of good works, helpful things, giving, serving. People like Albert Schweitzer, Tom Dooley. Good men, we say. But down inside, self-centered, autonomous, self-governed men. And those are the sons of the evil one, you see. Now the uh, farmhands want to go up, go out and tear them up. Let's go get them. Their purpose is good. They don't have any evil intent. Simply want to eradicate evil in the world. We're for good, so let's be against evil. Let's go out and, and tear them up. And Lord says, no, no, don't do that. Because you can't always distinguish between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of darkness. So let them grow. And then in time, God will sort everything out. You know, I, I think that uh, James and John must have been the target, really, of this portion of the parable. They were the so-called sons of thunder, as you know. And uh, subsequent to this incident, the Lord and his disciples were making their way through Samaria up to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans refused to receive them. And the disciples were outraged by this breach of hospitality. And they were sort of feeling their oats about this time. And they said, Lord, shall we command fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? Sort of thinking like latter-day Elijah's, I suppose, on Mount Carmel. And the Lord said, no, no, that's not why we came. That's not the way we get things done around here. We came to to save, not destroy, see? Violence never accomplished God's ends. Let's don't resort to that sort of thing. There's a, there's a better way. Let's wait until the end. And then he says, the angels, the grim reapers here will gather up 
those out of his kingdom who commit lawlessness and all stumbling blocks, that is, those who cause others to sin, and cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a picture of frustration and rage to the end. You see, they're still voicing their opposition to God and his plan to bring salvation to the earth. Then, he says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is a quotation from Daniel 12, and it places the time of this action as the time when the Lord Jesus comes back to usher in his righteous rule and set everything right. And so the Lord says, just wait until the Lord comes back. In the meantime, everything's under control. Don't get panicky. I'm fully aware that evil is growing in the midst of, of righteousness. Don't lose your sanity. Don't give way to fear. Don't become violent. Don't react to it. Wait, and God is going to set everything right at the proper time. Now let's try to understand what the Lord is saying to us. And remember, these again are mysteries. That is, there are things not revealed in the Old Testament. Things that can only be known by revelation. And they're for us. This is the Lord's view of the age in which we live. The first thing we learn from this parable is that there will be parallel development of good and evil during our age. We can expect it. Now, that would have been a startling revelation to the Jews of Jesus' day, particularly those who knew the Old Testament, because they believed on the basis of the Old Testament that when the king came, he would sweep away evil. The kingdom would be irresistible. Men simply could not resist it. And uh, they would either fall in line with the king or they would be cast out. And that's the view of the kingdom which, which they held. So they were totally unprepared for this new mystery form of the kingdom. And what the Lord tells them is that there would be a development of evil alongside righteousness throughout the entire period of the church age. Now, on a very practical level, that simply means that you and I will suffer. There's no way we can avoid it. Jesus promised in this world, you shall have tribulation. In Matthew 24, the Lord describes the events that will take place between the two advents of Jesus, between the first and second advents. And he says there will first of all be earthquake and famine. Now, you and I don't know anything about earthquake and famine in in terms in which they would identify those catastrophes. Because an earthquake meant your house, which was normally made out of mud, adobe, would be destroyed, your children would be crushed. Famine would mean starvation. They didn't have relief agencies. They didn't have hospitals. Famine and earthquake were terrible natural catastrophes. And so the Lord tells us that during this this age, there is an enemy at work who's, who is behind all natural catastrophe. We know that from the book of Job. That will bring about untold suffering and misery. We can expect it. Don't be surprised when it comes. Don't let it catch you by surprise. Secondly, he says there will be war and rumors of war, cold war, the tension of, arm, of the arms race, imminent conflict. He says there will be false prophets who will arise. 
secular philosophers, educators, secular psychiatrists, and others that will present themselves as the Messiah, the Savior, the ones who will set everything right, but who are empty and who don't really have any answers, who raise false hopes but can't provide any answers. In other words, things will get worse and worse. Our world will get darker and darker. We can expect it. Paul describes uh, our times in 2 Timothy 3 in this way. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The last days is not some far off period. It's now. It's the period between the first and second advents. The writer of Hebrews says, God who spoke in various ways through the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. These are the last days. We're living in them. And Paul says, this is the way things will be in the last days. They will be difficult. Times will be tough. The economy may not turn up this year. Your health may not get better. St. Helens may not drop ashes on us. Things will be tough. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds like the front page of the statesman, huh? John R. W. Stott once said that man was intended to love God first, his neighbor second, himself last. And when we invert that order of priorities and we love ourselves first, it's always our neighbor who suffers. And you'll notice it's this inversion that Paul is describing here. Men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And that's what's wrong with the world. Don't kid yourself. The problem with the world is men. We are the problem, as Pogo puts it. We have met the enemy and he is us. When men listen to the, to the seed that Satan sows, when they become autonomous, self-centered men, this is what they do. This is what life becomes. And that's why times get so difficult, so hard, so harsh. So let's be realistic in our expectations. Things may get worse. Cheer up. Jesus said they would. The second thing we learn from this parable is that there is a great conspiracy. Now, I want to underscore this, that the conspiracy is spiritual, okay? The enemy is the devil, he says. The, the real enemy is not man. Man has simply been victimized by the devil. Behind the scenes, there is a malicious, malevolent, evil cruel enemy of God who's out to blight and blast and destroy God's creation. He hates you and me. And he'll do anything he can to destroy us. And he's the one who's behind the scenes, moving men around like pawns on a chessboard. He's the enemy. He's the enemy. And we need to understand that because I think some people believe that Men are the real problem. I know many Christians who, who sincerely believe that there is a, a great conspiracy going on among men. There are secret societies. 
and collections of of people, agencies that are working behind the the scenes, slyly manipulating governments, banking concerns. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Maybe they're there. The evidence always seems very circumstantial to me, but maybe they're there. But even if they are, that's not the real problem. Oh, men are the problem. That's what we have. That's what that's what we encounter. That's what we're face to face with. But the real problem is the enemy behind the scenes, who's manipulating things for his own evil ends. And therefore, we need to use spiritual weapons to do combat. We must not lay aside the mighty weapons of faith that we have and resort to the puny, impotent weapons of the flesh. I used to have an Angora goat that I raised on a bottle. He was one of a set of twins, and uh, the mother rejected him, so I raised him on a bottle. And he was the cutest little critter, this little white furry thing. And I used to get out on the grass in our front yard, and I'd get down on my hands and knees and butt him because I thought that's what goats would like to do. And since he didn't have a mother, I uh, just mother him up a little bit, so I'd butt him. Until one day, that little rascal reared up on his hind legs and just let me have it, right on top of my head. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. That's when I decided I would no longer fight like a goat. There had to be a better way. And that's what we have to learn about Satan. We can't fight him with the tools of the flesh. Power politics and pressure groups and lobbies. Oh, they may have their place. I'm not denying it. And please, I'm not saying that we should not get directly involved in politics. A lot of people think I, I say that, but I'm not. I'm not. I think we ought to be involved on every strata of life as Christians. But I'm saying let's not substitute the mighty weapons of faith that we have for these other weapons. The weapons that we have at our disposal are love and personal righteousness and prayer and proclamation of the word. And when we lay those aside, we do so at our own peril. That's where we have to begin. I'm on this committee for a moral majority here in Idaho, and just last Thursday, a week or last Thursday, we met with Dr. Tim LaHaye to talk about what they're doing in, in Southern California. And I had an opportunity then to express some of my feeling about the approach that we ought to take here. Yes, we ought to stand up and speak as Christians against some of the evils in our society, abortion and uh, other other matters that concern us at this point. But whatever we do, we must not lay aside the weapons of faith that we have. We must do so in love. What, what we as Christians ought to decry is the stridency and harshness and name-calling that we often resort to as Christians because we think we're standing up for righteousness. And when we do, we lay aside the weapons that we have of love, forthrightness, righteousness, proclamation of righteousness, and personal righteous behavior, purity, and prayer. That's where we need to begin. Years ago when I was working with students, there were a group of radicals that were planning a, a confrontation with the faculty and we knew that it would be, it would, that there would be violence. They planned violence. They had already burned down the administration building and we didn't know what was next. And uh, a number of the Christian students on campus started contacting people in churches in the, in the area and asked them to meet on a given night to pray specifically that God would suppress this, uh, 
this action on the campus. And they did. There were hundreds of Christians that met all over Palo Alto and Los Altos and Mountain View and prayed that God would quash this thing. He would stop it. And he did. He did. And he doesn't always. Sometimes he wants man to bear the consequences of his evil actions. But in this case, he did. They couldn't put anything together. They started arguing among themselves, and the demonstration just fizzled. Never happened. Had we laid aside the mighty weapon of prayer, you see, we, we would have been vulnerable. Now, let me say again, there is an action which we can take on a political level, a social level, but let's not lay aside the weapons, the mighty weapons that we have. As Paul puts it, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling, pulling down of strongholds. What we need to realize is that we as the church, not this church, but the church universal, we are the secret government of the universe. It says we stand righteously and for right and live our lives on a biblical basis and proclaim truth and love people and pray that extraordinary things will happen. So that's the second thing that we learn from this parable. The battle is spiritual, therefore we ought to use spiritual countermeasures. The third, the point that I made earlier, the point which Jesus himself makes, don't be a terror upper. The seed looks awfully good that Satan grows, that he sows. We can't always tell good from evil. Some people who are imbued with the spirit of independence and self Self-dependence, uh, self-centeredness look just like anyone else in the world and therefore we cannot, we cannot distinguish them always. Sometimes we can, but we can't always. And therefore we always need to make our judgments tentative and wait for God to sort things out in the end. As Paul puts it, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. When he will bring to light the hidden secrets of, of the heart and make manifest the thoughts, every man's thoughts. Wait until the time. I just this past week heard of a, a couple, a family, who were rebuked publicly because it was believed that they were temporizing with sin. They weren't at all. They were struggling and hurting they didn't know how to sort things out in their family. And they were rebuked from, from a pulpit because someone felt that they were acting in an ungodly fashion. Now, there is a place for that sort of discipline. Scripture spells it out for us. Where there is rebellion against truth, ongoing rebellion, then we need to take redemptive disciplinary steps. Always in love, but discipline needs to be taken. But this wasn't called for in this, in this case, in this family went away in shame and, and ignominy. It was wrong. The pastor was well-meaning. But he tore up a young and immature plant. What was needed was comfort and instruction and care, a lifting up, you see, a redemptive action. And a living, immature saint was uprooted. Now, I'm not suggesting that we overlook evil in the world. We can't. The Lord himself got angry 
at times when confronted with evil. It's really a perspective on life. It's a positive outlook on life. That we're not on a witch hunt. We're not out to find heretics. We're here to grow. To grow to maturity. And we're not against much of anything. We're for truth. Now, there will be times that we will be against things because we're for truth. But our perspective on life ought to be basically positive and constructive and redemptive. I have a friend who used to describe a man in his business as an againer. And I said, what in the world is an againer? He says, well, I have three men in my business that I can work with. They're easy to work with, but there's one man who's an againer. He's again everything I'm for. He's again everybody in our plant. Let's don't be againers. Let's be positive. Be constructive. Later on in Matthew, we'll get to it in a few weeks, the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, Lord, don't you know that what you said offended the Pharisees? As if the Lord really mattered, cared. And the implication of their statement was, aren't you, aren't you going to do something about it? Aren't you going to confront the Pharisees? The Lord said this, Every bush that my Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Leave them alone. You see, they had forgotten the message of the tares. Let's not. Let's not write off whole classes of people because they're in the wrong church or the wrong group or because that particular church has a wrong set of doctrines because within that group, that larger group, there may be genuine, honest-to-goodness sons of the kingdom. How do we, for example, feel about Roman Catholics? Do you write off Catholics because they're in the Catholic Church? We mustn't. Because within the Catholic Church, there are sons of the kingdom. I know. I've met them. I've talked to them. We have some of them in our Wednesday morning class. We have a young man here this morning who comes here in the 9 o'clock service and then goes to St. Mark's. He's a member there, part of that parish, because that's where he has a ministry. So while we may not agree with some of the things the Roman Catholic Church teaches, we cannot be a terror up or we cannot discount the fact that within a body of people that we, that we may not agree with, there are people that love the Lord Jesus and are serving Him and are sons of the kingdom. You see, let's be positive. Let's be constructive people. Let's don't be like Don Quixote and jump on his horse and ride off in all directions and once and Spend our life tilting at, at satanic windmills. And, and so much of, of Christian ministry is that sort of frantic, quixotic endeavor. Just running about, tilting with everyone. Fiercely confronting everyone. And so foreign to the character of Christ. He was so kind and so gentle. Always straightforward, always truthful. Never backed down from the truth but he left the judgment to the Father. And that's what we must do. And in the meantime, what do we do? Well, grow where you're planted. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and cause you to grow up to maturity in Him. 
Let him build into your life his compassion, his purity, his grace, his goodness, his forthrightness, his discernment, and grow till the harvest. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father, that you have indeed called us out of the world to be your sons. Were it not for your grace, we would never have received the word. Deliver us, Father, from our tendency to judge and criticize, divide, where you've never intended a division to be. Help us to be discerning. Keep us from being gullible, believing everything. Teach us to make discernments on the basis of your word. But keep us from making those ultimate and final judgments that cut people off, that may do irreparable harm to young plants. Help us to be constructive, positive, redemptive, loving, dependent upon you, because we know that's where all of these things come from. That's the source of our righteousness. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.